Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July weekend, huh? Isn't it summer in Colorado? It's not, not too bad. Summer in Nebraska, slightly better, but this will do, won't it? Tough, tough crowd. All right, you guys, come on. Larry, you did set me up for failure, I think, you know, but anyway. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. My name is James Hawksworth, and it's crazy that a little over three years ago, three years ago in a month, uh, Bridgeway Community Church was birthed. Uh, out of a wonderful sending partnership with Waterstone. And, and I'll never forget the first day that we were, we, you commissioned us, you sent us out, and, and Larry, you know, bringing these elders together said, ladies and gentlemen, the elders of Bridgestone Community Church. And I was like, people still call us Bridgestone sometimes, but it's Bridgeway, and I'll never forget that day. And uh, botching our name, that was cool, but that's all right, you know. Uh, just really quickly, I wanted to share three quick little stories. Uh, they asked for a simple little highlights of the church. First picture I want to show you is a guy named Bud. Some of you may have known Bud. Bud, I think, is now 94. He's an old World War II vet. He goes every year, actually I think he goes quite often more than once a year, to go visit the grave of his wife over in Fort Logan. And one day he looks forward to being buried next to her there. But Bud was a guy who came to us just riddled with guilt and shame and fear and wondered if actually God really loved him. And about a year and a half ago, or almost two years ago, we had the privilege of baptizing Bud as he understood what it meant to receive the gospel. And that was an awesome moment. And to see that, it was so, so cool, you know. And I love this guy. And, and he says, I don't know much. It's like, well, here's what you need to know. You need to know God loves you. He forgives you. And you trust him because who else can you trust? yourself, you can't do it. Another guy came to us. His name was Jacob. Jacob was a, an across-the-street neighbor from one of our uh, members at the church. His name was Jacob, and his picture's up here too. Jacob was a guy, he said, I celebrated my spiritual birthday a year ago, uh, about a year and a week ago now. And Jacob, uh, he began to get involved with our community, and I said, Jacob, do you want to follow Jesus? And he says, I do. I just don't know anything about him. I love that honesty from a guy who never grew up in church. He said, I want to, but I just don't have a clue. And I said, well, how about we open up some of the, uh, there's books in the Bible called Gospels. There's four of them, and you pick one and we'll study it. He picked the Gospel of John, and we began to study that. And over that time, he came to faith. And it's awesome to see what God does. And the last one here is a little girl named Ava. Ava is, I think she's seven or eight now. I think she's seven still. Ava's awesome. And that's my baptism shirt. I wear it every time, by the way. Okay, I just, that's like my, uh, don't worry, I change clothes more often than that, but... Uh, it's just the shirt I wear. I don't know why. But anyway, this was about a month ago. We had the opportunity to baptize little Ava. And Ava is an evangelist to the T. You know those little kids who just, they don't give a rip what you think about them. You're just going to tell them like it is and tell them about Jesus. And she wanted to get baptized. And we talked to her and made sure she understood what was being done and all that stuff. You know, kids got it a lot better than we adults who think we got it all figured out. You know what I mean? Especially with children when Jesus says the children to the kingdom belongs children, Right? Or however that goes. Is that how it goes, Larry? You know, children, you have to enter like a child to enter the kingdom of God, right? To have that childlike faith. Well, she brought her grandma, Grandma Johnny, her, her birth grandmother. She was actually foster adopted by a couple in our church. And her birth grandmother came that day to see her baptized. And her grandma was at our church just last week. And through, I think, the witness of her little granddaughter faithfully telling her about Jesus... And something last week clicked, and she was receiving communion. And she goes up to her actual adopted grandparents who were delivering communion that day. And she goes, I love Jesus. I think he's awesome. I believe. I want to follow God. She goes, what does this communion stuff mean? 
And in that moment, I think she came to faith through the faith of her granddaughter, you know? And I praise God for those things. There's challenges, of course, as we deal with people, right? <laughs> and it's awesome. And we keep going by God's grace and His faith in us and, and His, we, we, not our faith in us, but our faith in Him. And we say at Bridgeway, we want to make much of Jesus. And we do that by making disciples who know the gospel, live the gospel, and advance the gospel. So thank you guys so much for your partnership. I praise God for that, and I'm grateful. So, and thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. Let's pray, shall we? God, we come into your presence with thanksgiving. We come into your courts with praise. Today is the day that you have made. We rejoice and we are glad in it. And Father, we ask as you open up um, to us your word, that you speak to us in the way that your voice is the one that can only penetrate our hearts to lead to transformation. Father, would you do that work this morning? Father, as we look at this psalm, Psalm 3, on the struggle that I think probably everyone in this room faces, the struggle of anxiety and worry, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to be a changed people this morning. Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what is in your law and how good it is to see this, Lord. And Lord, do that work again that only you can do. Lord, I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you for your glory and for Christ's sake. And all God's people said, amen. If you have a Bible, please go to Psalm chapter 3. I guess it would be the third psalm. Really, They're not really chapters, but it's Psalm 3, right? If you're new to this whole Christianity thing and you have a Bible, the Bible, usually if you open up the psalms, it's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. If not, you're in Isaiah, and then just come back to the left a little bit, um, and you'll find Psalm 3. We're going to talk about a very impractical subject today, dealing with your anxiety, okay? So I'm afraid if this is not helpful to you, well, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think everyone, if we're honest, actually deals with a great deal of worry, anxiety, and how that plays out in our lives is as varied as it is there are many people here this morning. But if we're honest, we can see that we live in what even the poets have often called the age of anxiety. And that if left un, uncared for, anxiety can become chronic and debilitating. And here's why I love the Psalms. This summer we're going through the Psalms at Bridgeway. I love the Psalms because they're honest about life. Isn't that refreshing? That you can be brutally honest with God about your situation. And, and we were talking earlier that the Psalms are actually one of the books that is the only book in the Bible that is actually written to God, right? They're composed of these, these anxious grief-stricken, doubt-laden, joyful, praising types of psalms that express the whole spectrum of human emotion. And this morning, we're going to look at that emotion that I think most of us deal with, the issue of anxiety and worry. Robert Creech and Jim Harrington in their book, The Leader's Journey, say this, the psalms often show us the journey from anxiety to peace that unfolds when we offer ourselves to God in prayer. Through the holy habit of prayer and the corresponding discipline of writing it down, the psalmist finds deep personal strength and changed perspective. Wouldn't you love to be changed from your anxiety? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just wave a magic wand and your worry just disappears? Footloose and fancy free, no more problems. Well, I have some uh, realistic news that there is no actual quick fix. <laughs> But there are things that we can do to place our souls in God's presence that transforms us. And when we do not deny the reality that we deal with anxiety and worry, specifically looking at this passage, 
that we place ourselves in a position where God can work and transform us and give us the peace that only He can give. I mean, our culture is saturated with the idea of security, isn't it? Don't we all long to be safe? I mean, we take out life insurance policies. We take out insurance policies. We put in security systems. In fact, even our culture is built around that. Many of you probably have either done business or heard of the company MetLife. You heard of those guys? Snoopy, right? Isn't that his guy? The Snoopy guy? The Snoopy blimp people? Their ads were going like this. Guarantees for the if in life. And then that ad continues to go on, and it says, peace of mind guaranteed. Oh, if only that were true. (laughs) I think we should sue them for false advertising, don't you think? I mean, what a terrible slogan. But isn't that true? It speaks to our desire, our human need for security, safety, and peace. It's estimated that over 40 million Americans struggle with anxiety disorders. That's about 20%. Uh, Some people in the National Institute of Mental Health actually think there's actually another 10% of people who live with chronic anxiety that's undiagnosed and it becomes debilitating. Issues surrounding anxiety cost the mental health system $42 billion a year. That's quite a bit of chump change, isn't that? Out of the almost a third of the $148 billion mental health bill for the U.S., People with anxiety, many of you, you you know this, right? You feel out of control over your health and your life. You experience higher levels of overall stress. You feel nervous in social situations. You have difficulty managing pressure. You put higher expectations on yourself and others. You feel that love is is performance-based and you have to, what have you done for me lately? People who are often anxious are often workaholics. They're often sick. They're often quick to be angry and just flat out unhappy. They feel unsettled or overwhelmed. They feel disconnected or detached from reality or life. And as I was looking at this list that was provided by anxietycenter.com, the last two, they were talking about, they said they feel distant from God and they question their faith if it's real. Isn't that the core of it? Where we actually begin to question, God, are you even there if I'm so anxious and you're the, the God of peace? Where's the peace, Right? And it goes back again to our human nature of our our desire for control, to be safe internally and externally, to have security in relationships and jobs and finances and health. Don't we long to be safe? We long to be home. I remember as a kid growing up with a bit of anxiety and still do from time to time struggle with anxiety. I remember if you ever grew up, anybody grow up on like a farm or the country? Any country people in here? All right, good. Don't be ashamed, country people. All right, raise those hands. Hi, all right. But I remember growing up, I was always terrified that a tornado was going to come and gobble up me and my house and send me to Kansas or something like that. You know what I mean? I was paralyzed by this silly fear. And I remember I'd be watching the afternoons, you know, like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or Reading Rainbow, something on PBS, and all of a sudden you could see the dark storm clouds form in the west. And then on the TV screen would pop this little circle with a W in it. And that was like a sign of deadly fear in my life. That W meant severe weather was on its way. I'm like, this could be my demise. The tornado is coming. And I would double check, you know, make sure that storm cellar was ready. And I'm like, is the tornado going to get us? And while it seems sort of silly and childish now, I realize at the end of the day, that core of this desire for somebody and something and someplace safe resides deep in my heart. 
And that anxiety and worry, if left unchecked, can destroy you. It'll destroy yourself, it'll destroy your relationships, it'll destroy everything. And here in the Psalms, we have a beautiful picture of how to deal with anxiety. In Psalm 3, it's always important to actually see if there's actual historical context to these things and when these are written. To understand when that was written, what was the point of that. And Psalm 3 is a beautiful one that actually is pulled out of a real-life situation in King David's life. If you have Psalm 3 in front of you, you'll see sometimes it even has a title with it. Do you see that? It says, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled Absalom, his son. Now let me give you a little historical background. If you ever have read or have studied the life of David, can anybody in here um, relate to a dysfunctional family? (laughs) Okay. Anybody in here relate to a rebellious child? Or maybe you were a rebellious child yourself, and you know that. David's life was a mess, often. I, I, I did a calculation. I didn't realize this until a few weeks ago, that David had children with seven different women. Imagine what that would do for your family dynamic. And the story of Absalom, when when he's fleeing Absalom, if you don't know the background, let me just give it to you in a little nutshell. Again, read 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17. But David's firstborn son was named Amnon. And David also had, again, many other children, but he had two uh, full brother and sister by the name of Tamar and Absalom. And Amnon the half-brother of Tamar and Absalom, had a crush on Tamar, thought she was pretty good looking. Decided, you know what, I want to set up a scheme so that I can make her my own. And in the darkness of his own heart, he creates this scheme where he actually facilitates raping her and destroying her. Well, Absalom, the full-blooded brother of Tamar, gets wind of that. And what would you want to do if somebody did that to your sister? You'd want to what? Kill him right? If we're honest, you'd want to kill him. And for two years, Absalom plots and he schemes and he creates a plan. What can I do to destroy Amnon? Two years later, he gets Amnon drunk in a party and has some hitmen come and take Amnon out. And Absalom feels avenged. Amidst all this family strife and drama, what that does, it actually doesn't heal the family. It creates a further gap of relational distance between the family. And now David is so frustrated and mad at Absalom, he refuses to even talk to him or see him. And for two years, the silence goes on, and the silence in the relationship is deafening. And Absalom begins to think, you know what, my dad's getting up there in age. I'm actually a son of the king. He's losing his grip on power. How about I become king? What a novel idea. Oh, to be king. Absalom actually begins to connive and plot where he says, I will make myself king. In fact, it says in 2 Samuel 15 that he actually got chariots and horsemen and groupies of 50 people to run in front of him and be like, look at Absalom. I thought that was always very silly. That he actually had to get a bunch of groupies in this chariot and be like, hey, here he comes, you know. Oh, Absalom. He would actually then go and sit in front of the city gate and tell people, here's here's your problems. Let me solve your problems for you. I'll be your judge. I'll give you justice. And it says in 2 Samuel at the beginning of 15, it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. He was a pretty brilliant politician, you could say. 
Fast forward a few months later, he gets enough advisors and military people and enough political clout and enough popularity that he actually declares a coup in the town of Hebron just a little ways outside of Jerusalem. In fact, he gets all these groupies to shout out, Absalom is king! Absalom is king! And people are like, what is going on? I guess he's the son of the king. He must be. And all of a sudden, you had a literal royal coup on your hands. And King David gets word that, hey, your son has just um, tried to overthrow your government. Now, wouldn't that kind of freak you out a little bit? Especially if you knew you had military advisors, a lot of popularity, um, other close friends and associates that you thought you could trust were now on Absalom's team. And then some of David's remnants, they say, you know what, it might be a good time to get out of town. Uh, I don't think this would be wise. And so David, it says, in sackcloth and ashes, he gathers the remnant of people that are still with him, and he gets out of town, and he heads out of Jerusalem. And while he's leaving Jerusalem, as his son is delivering a coup against his own kingdom, he's losing everything and everyone that he thought. He's losing his power. He's losing his position. He's losing his glory as king. He pens this psalm, Psalm 3. Isn't that cool? In the midst of the height of his anxiety, what's he do? Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Did you see that? Look down at Psalm 1. I mean Psalm 3, verse 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's losing his grip on the kingdom. He's a potential failure. He's losing control. His son is gone. His close advisors, some of them are gone. Spiritual leaders, he's getting deserted. And to top it all off, people are even saying God himself has abandoned him. Wouldn't that be terrorizing? Couldn't that be the, most wor- the, the worst possible thing that we could ever experience is to be abandoned by God himself? In fact, there was a guy by the name of Shimei. I don't know if there's many of those around now but a weird little name. And he actually came from the house of Saul. So Saul was the king before David. And Saul had his own issues. But Shimei, he sees David and his little entourage leaving. And they're actually heading up the Mount of Olives, if you know that place near Jerusalem. And here comes Shimei. He says he starts throwing rocks at David and says, curse you. And he starts to curse the king. I imagine if it was on TV, it'd be beep, beep, beep. You know what I mean? A lot of, you know, negative words being said. Choice words. He says he begins to throw rocks at the king. He says, you're a man of blood. Even God himself has turned against you. And how terrible, again, that must be. In fact, the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, talks about this. If there is no salvation for you in God, listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, if all the trials which come from heaven and all the temptations which ascend from hell and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, They would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. That is hell. To be abandoned by God is the worst possible existence for us. And people are yelling at David, look, God himself has abandoned you. He's revisiting all those past sins, David. Remember when you killed Uriah after you had adultery with Bathsheba? Yeah, God's going to get you. Or David, remember when you killed all those other people and you're a man of blood? Yeah, God's abandoning you now, David. Uh, That would be a really encouraged message, wouldn't it? I mean, that would just lift up the soul. 
And David is just hearing this, and the waves of negativity and despair are pounding on his soul, and he's losing everything that he's built his life upon. And it's interesting that we could say David had every right to be anxious, right? Yeah, David, it's cool if you're anxious in this moment. His kingdom is in the balance, his pride, his life, his security. Everything is on the line. And then there's that favorite word in the Bible, right? But. Right? But. All of a sudden, David gets his eyes off of his circumstances and onto the Lord. Look down at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. Isn't that interesting? After he sees all that's going down, he says, but you, O Lord, I'm getting my eyes off my circumstances. I'm fixing them on you. You're my shield. You're the one that protects me. You're my glory. You're, You're the one in which I find all my identity. I do not find my identity even in being the king of Israel. I don't even find my identity in being a man after your own heart. I find my identity in you and you alone. You are my glory. I think a a practical term for glory is what do you live for? That's what you find your glory in. Be it your job, your family, your finances, your house, your cars, your boats, yourself. What's your glory? What do you live for? He says, you order my glory. And in that, when he finds his glory in God, there's a beautiful thing that... When you realize that God is your glory, you don't have to justify yourself to anyone. Isn't that freeing? <laughs> Amen. Isn't that totally and utterly freeing that David say, hey, I'm the king. i got to show the world I'm king here. I, I, I'm the man after God's own heart. Don't you know who you're dealing with? He says, you, Lord, are my glory. He points back to the Lord. He does not have to vindicate himself. He does not have to justify himself. He finds in the Lord God of Israel his glory. And then he says, you the lifter of my head. Isn't that fascinating how the human body and the human soul are so intertwined? What direction do we often look when we are down? Down, <laughs> right? Isn't that fascinating how quickly our eyes go? Our, they, even the, the Bible says our face has fallen at times. That we begin to droop. And when our eyes are down on our circumstances, I mean, it's obvious, right? Our eyes are not looking up. But in the midst of these dark times, God in His grace and His love, what's He do? He says, He is the one that lifts my head. That He has the gentle hand that comes underneath our chin and says, look up here and see me. And when our eyes begin to get off of our circumstances that are causing us so much anxiety and pain and fear and worry and anger, when our eyes get off of our circumstances and they're placed up, we can see God for who He is. And God in His grace does this for us. And even in the midst of great anxiety and fear, when your kingdom is falling apart, God does this. It goes on, look down at verse 4. Again, as he's fleeing Jerusalem, going up the Mount of Olives, weeping and in ashes, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept, and I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. Anybody ever struggle with not sleeping well through the night? Sometimes it's that terrorizing word called insomnia. Do you ever find yourself, actually, if you struggle with anxiety, do you ever find yourself getting anxious about being anxious? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh no, when am I going to be worried again? And you get worried about being worried. And then even that word insomnia sometimes freaks me out because I want to sleep at night. I think this verse almost is describing, I bet David had a hard time sleeping that night, don't you? 
I don't know how well he slept. I bet it was a fitful night's sleep. And I remember one time when I was really struggling in, at, at Wheaton College of all places, right? And, and I was going through a struggle of my own faith and do I believe these things? And it would actually cause me to lose sleep. And the anxiety would be so strong. And when you're a big man on campus, campus literally and metaphorically, you don't tell people your struggles, right? You just, you just man up and deal with it. But I remember I finally, by God's grace, had the courage, by God's grace once again, to, to talk to people about my struggle. And I remember talking to my roommate, Reggie King. I said, Reggie, I'm really struggling. Sometimes I don't even sleep well at night. And I'll never forget what he said and what he did. He goes, Hawks, if you ever struggle... Why don't you do this? You can wake me up and I will get down out of bed and I will read to you from the Psalms. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, okay. Well, one night I can't sleep. And we got those bunk beds. You know dorm room bunk beds? You know what I'm talking about, right? You're like flashback. Oh, no, right? A lot of bad memories there, right? But I remember it had these like two plywood sections that would, you know, hold up the mattress. And I remember I was on the bottom line. I push up. I'm like, Reggie! <laughs> I'm like, I can't sleep, man. I'll never forget, he pulled over one of those dorm-issued chairs and he opened up his Bible to the Psalms and he began to read to me from the Psalms. And in that, I, I, I experienced, I think, what David experienced when he said, I awoke in the night and Lord, you sustained me. You upheld me through my deepest and darkest struggles. You were actually not absent, you were present. And even though life may be going to hell in a handbasket around me, that does not deny that you are not present. Too often we equate uh, easygoing life with God's presence or blessing. And the, rea the, the reality is often it's the inverse. is when we are going through the darkest of times that we experience God's presence most deeply. And then he begins to be wakened in the night and he's comforted by the Lord himself. And out of that comfort, he realizes, look at verse 6, it says this. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. It actually... Uh, was seen in 2 Samuel later in 17 in that whole story of Absalom's coup that one of Absalom's military advisors, his name was Ahithophel. Anybody named Ahithophel out here today? We're going to give you a shout out, right? But Ahithophel asked Absalom for 12,000 men. Let's do this. Let's surround David with 12,000 men. Let's, let's ambush this guy and end it all. And Absalom, you got the throne, baby. 12,000. And in that moment, I think David would feel a little bit alone. When all he's got left is a few mighty men, a few warriors, a few military advisors and spiritual advisors. J.J. Perrone, the, the preacher, he says this. He says, enemies may be as thick as the leaves of the forest, and earthly friends may be few or uncertain or far off, but there is one friend who cannot fail him. And to him David turns with a confidence and affection which lift him above all his fears. We need to be lifted out of our circumstances and see God for who he is. And when that happens, we find peace in the midst of the storm. That's how David finds this. But it goes on in here. David is actually still very honest. Look down at verse 7. He actually pleads with God to act. See what he says in verse 7? He says, Arise, O Lord. I think it's a shout. Like, wake up, God. Right? Wake up. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. That word save is the Hebrew word yasar. The same word that we, we form words and names like Yeshua. Do you know that name? 
It's the Hebrew word for Joshua, right? Which embedded into that means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. We also know another very famous Yeshua, don't we? Jesus. And he calls on the Lord to save him. He shouts out this verb of salvation, Yasar. And then he does something interesting. He says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. We call these the imprecatory psalms. Have you heard of these before? These are what often (laughs) can be sometimes dark verses. I mean, David, do you see what he's doing? He's asking God to punch his enemies in the mouth. Like, God, just get up and punch. Has anybody ever been a victim of theft? All right. few of us, right? Actually, less than I would have thought. All right. I've had, I think I've had like five of my bikes stolen in the course of my life. I've had my house broken into like three times. It's not cool, right? Especially when you come home to a ransacked house. But some of the worst are, I hate bike thieves because I enjoy my bike. And I would, after, after coming home and finding my bikes gone missing, I would pray imprecatory psalms on these thieves. I, I would say, Lord, let the tires never have air again. And may the chain rust and fall off. May their brakes fail as they enter the cross. Well, I mean, I pray sometimes. He, I'm sorry, but it can get pretty dark sometimes, all right? But it's, amen, amen, right? Yeah, that's, we're going to start preaching now, all right? <laughs> See how quick we can go dark, though. Amen, man. Is war from inside or outside? Wonder Woman? We need Wonder Woman, all right? But, but you see what David does? As opposed to taking matters into his own hands, what's he do? He says, you, Lord, do it. And I'm reminded of that verse, vengeance is whose? Mine. Not, not mine, but mine, right? I will repay, says the Lord, not says James. And David is willing to actually entrust himself, even come what may in one sense. Whether wickedness even befalls me, Lord, arise and do what you do. Enact your salvation and enact your justice. Because I'm even reminded of our own Yeshua, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, right? On the night when he is suffering on the cross, he prays one of those Psalms, Psalm 22. You remember that? In the greatest act of salvation and justice. When Christ himself prays from the cross, what's he pray? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that? And in the moment of God's greatest act of salvation and God's greatest act of justice, we see these things meet. And Christ himself entrusted himself to the will of the Father. And David, likewise, does not take matters into his own hands. What do I got to do to make this work well for me? What do I got to gather control and take back power and be strong again to be king? No, Lord, you smash their teeth. You save me. You do what only you can do. And he wraps it up in verse 8 by saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah which meant this little pause and reflect kind of thing in Hebrew. So this morning, whoops, excuse me, sorry about that. How do we apply this to our lives now that we've seen the, the old historic understanding of Psalm 3? How do we bring this home for us here in 2017 in good old middle class America where we see anxiety going berserk I read something over the last seven years that the opioid crisis has gone up 500% in America. Trying to numb the pain. That we are looking for salvation. We are looking for Yeshua's who will rescue us from our anxiety and our fear. All right? 
And it's very, especially here in Colorado, where we can get the Rocky Mountain high to deal with our anxiety. You know what I'm talking about, right? When our world is crashing down and we're paralyzed by anxiety and fear, what is our salvation? What is our Yeshua? And we start back by looking at our circumstances. How many are my foes? What are your foes this morning, right? Is it your health? Is it, is it your economic status? Is it your relationships with family members or friends? Is it spiritual distance? Is it legal struggles? What is causing you anxiety and worry and fear? Tim Keller, you guys heard of him? He's one of my favorite preachers, all right? You guys quote him here at Waterstone, right? Yeah. Tim Keller, a great preacher, he defined anxiety this way. He said, anxiety is what we feel when our existence as selves is threatened. When our existence as selves is threatened, it actually becomes unhealthy and debilitating. Now, there's a big difference between healthy fear, right? The old flight or fight that God gave us is a good thing. It actually causes us to act. But anxiety, it can be very diffuse. It can be very debilitating. Have you ever found yourself even caught up in worry and you're like, what am I even worrying about right now? And you're finding yourself wrapped up in this spin cycle of anxiety. Or maybe you die a death of a million what-ifs. What if, what if, what if, what if. I am the king of worst-case scenarios. Um, I, I, was, I use this analogy. You remember those books as kids that you would read called Choose Your Own Adventure? Uh, some of you know those, right? You say, if you want to take the, the old wagon train down to the pond, turn to page 87. Or if you want to go down into the gold mine, turn to page 76, right? You know what I'm talking about? And you could choose your own adventure how the story would go. And I can create some phenomenal dramas in my head about how life is going to go. That actually detach me from reality and detach me from others. And all of a sudden, I am trying to play God in my own mind. <coughs> we realize that there are internal and external anxieties. But what are these things accomplishing for us? Uh, I use this analogy at Bridgeway often. Do you remember the old um, anti-war song? It was just called War. It goes, goes, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Remember that song, right? Some of you guys might not know that, all right? But, and I'm, I'm a little pre- or post-Vietnam stuff, but you know that song, right? And, and I, I've carried that out. I just substitute war, and it sounds very similar. Worry, right? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. You know Jesus himself, right, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your puny little life? Uh, and he even says, don't worry, even the hairs of your head are numbered. And I said, thank you, Lord, I can get that one down, all right? You know, but... Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, best joke all day right there, all right, man. Whew. All right. But isn't this so true that often worry, fear, and anxiety are tied to the theological reality of unbelief? We functionally do not believe that God is good, that God is in control, and that God will provide. We have to find a new shield, a new protector, a new glory, a new lifter of our heads to get us through. And we see this, these, these things playing out and how we deal with this all over the place. We dream of, of ways to deal with this. We find our pseudo-saviors, pseudo our pseudo-Yeshuas in natural human responses. How about just shutting down and going into your shell and isolating yourself? It's so debilitating. And the devil loves it when he gets you all alone. 
Or maybe you deny that you have a problem. Or how about self-medicating behaviors? It's crushing us. How about just one more drink? One more click? One more something to numb the fear and the pain? One more. Just one more. To anesthetize this. Or maybe I get so angry I don't know how to deal with this so I just lash out and angry because my kingdom's being stripped away. I don't feel safe. I don't find any glory in this. And Tim Keller says, you know what? In the midst of your anxiety, relocate your glory. He goes, if we find ourselves getting anxious, we've placed our glory in something finite that won't last. Something that cannot deliver the goods, but we always have gone back to it. And you know this, that we are creatures of habit. (laughs) Even if you say you're not, I guarantee it's very predictable that I can predict what you will predictably do in the next few days, all right? You know, we actually call, we call this actually liturgies sometimes in, in Christian circles. That, that we go through a, a traditional process of ritual. And we all have that. The ways that we go about our coffee in the morning, right? Or the ways that we go about fixing our hair, which is fun for me as well, you know? Or the way that we view food or friendships or recreation. And these things are forming us. And the ways that we deal with anxiety can be very predictable as well. That we actually need to retrain our loves and retrain our habits, retrain our liturgies about the way we go about our lives. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is no quick, simple, wave the magic wand and anxiety is gone forever. As long as we live in this fallen world, we will deal with this. But we can retrain our hearts from these old negative behaviors that have done nothing to rescue us and nothing to save us and fix our eyes on Jesus, that we begin to relocate our glory on the infinite God. And we begin to not just stuff or bow to our emotions, like Keller says, but we begin to pray our fears. Philippians 4, right? Everybody, if you've gone to church for a long time, you probably know this passage, right? Philippians 4, don't be anxious about what? Anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then, by praying your fears, here's what happens. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You begin to retrain your habits and what you love and your focus. I remember uh, a while back in Phoenix, I was wrestling with anxiety, and I went to see one of my friends. He was a Christian. uh, He was a uh, doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix. And I said, hey, uh, Dr. Bergstrom, I'm really kind of struggling with anxiety. Do you, do you recommend anything? You know, thinking he'd have some just massively breathtaking thing for me. And he said, here's one thing that I like to tell some of my patients, especially if they're Christians. He goes, I call it sometimes spiritual breathing. And maybe you've heard of this. Again, I go back to it's interesting how God has wired our souls and our bodies to be intertwined. That when we can deal with anxiety crazily, right, we can see we, our bodies can literally rot away, right? And, and we get things called ulcers or heart palpitations because of the anxiety that's weighing on our souls. He says, one thing I recommend for people is to practice spiritual breathing. He says, one way that God has wired us is if we actually deep breathe. Have you ever done It's really fun, isn't it? It's, it's amazing how God's done this. He says, I challenge you to take a deep breath in for five to ten seconds. And as you are breathing in, you pray in Christ. And then I want you to exhale for another five to ten seconds. And as you are exhaling, you say, I'm at peace. 
He says you're breathing in Christ and you're exhaling Christ. And all of a sudden, God has wired us to focus our brains and our bodies on the goodness of Christ. And all of a sudden, the fears begin to melt away. And my focus is off of my circumstances and onto Jesus. And I begin to experience a little bit of that peace. There's other things that we can do, obviously, right? That we should find help in the community. That we should not be isolated. Like I said earlier, the devil loves to keep you isolated in your own dark cesspool of your mind and your heart. And he wants to give you a community. He's given us each other by his grace. To be honest in the journey together as we go in the journey and the fight of faith. Go talk to doctors and get these things figured out. But I want to close briefly with six little things from the Christian counselor, David Paulison. Maybe you, some of you have heard of him. He's very helpful. I saw this a few weeks ago. He said, here's six things that can help you when you deal with anxiety. And I want to give them to you from David. He says, the first thing that we can do is name. Name the pressures. You always worry about something and what things tend to hook you. What do you tend to worry about? And what good reasons do you have for anxiety? We actually, last night at Saturday night, I actually took time and said, I want you to write down right now what causes you anxiety. I still encourage you to do that. Write these things down. Secondly, he says, identify. Identify how you express your anxiety. Spot the signs. And how does anxiety show up in your life? Thirdly, he says, ask. Ask yourself, why am I anxious? Get to the core of it. Fourth, he says, listen. What better reason does Jesus give you to not worry? Similar to what we talked about from Matthew 6. What does God say about himself and the situation that you're going through? Fifth, he says, talk. Go to your father. Talk to him. I added this part. Talk to a trusted friend. Because God mediates his grace through his people. There is power in confession when you are set free and you talk to a brother or sister about your struggles and they walk the journey with you, pray and confess. And finally, six, he says, give. Do something and say something constructive. What if nothing negative came out of our mouths for a month? How about a day? (laughs) Let's just try for a day. Let's not shoot for such a high standard. Do and say something constructive. Care for someone else. Give to me a human need. I find this to be so true that when I begin to get my focus off of me and onto someone else, all of a sudden I don't have to be anxious about me anymore. And God mediates His grace in that situation of serving. And finally, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, I was thinking about how silly it was that Absalom got a chariot and horses and 50 groupies to be like, Absalom, you're the man, right? I thought it was just so silly. And then I reminded of Psalm 20. Maybe you've heard this passage before. In Psalm 20, it says this, Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, and we rise and stand upright. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Don't trust in these finite things like horses and chariots that you have. Jesus longs to care for your burdens. In fact, in Galatians it says, cast your burdens on Him because why? He cares for you. And in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden and anxious and burdened by life, right? Come to Me. 
and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find in me what? Rest for your weary soul. Jesus longs to care for you in this way because what else can be your Yeshua? How is that working for you, to use Dr. Phil? How desperate are you? I've thought about that too. Sometimes it takes us to finally get to the breaking point to realize our desperation. Are we desperate enough? I have a, I have a chiropractor. And he's become a friend of mine. He, he's a South African rugby player. and I've taken up rugby. It's a great sport. Uh, and he, he wanted me to come in and visit. And I was actually one of the later ones in my family to go see him. And he had this interesting line. He goes, yeah, us guys often, we don't usually go in until the pain is unbearable. <laughs> And I was like, wow, isn't that a good analogy of the spiritual life? We actually don't come to Christ until the pain is unbearable. And the, weave, the, the webs that we've woven have become so entangled and so suffocating. Wow, Lord, please save me. And you know what? God loves to save you. Are you desperate this morning? A.W. Tozer says this, For each of us, the time is coming when we shall have nothing but God. Health and wealth and friends and hiding places will be swept away and we shall have only God. To the man of pseudo-faith, that is a terrifying thought. But to those with real faith, it is one of the most comforting thoughts the heart can entertain. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. And I ask, Lord, by your Spirit's power that you would speak to each heart that's in this room this morning. I pray that you would set free those who are burdened by life and anxiety and worry and fear. And Lord, that we would be able to see you and get our eyes off of our circumstances and our eyes onto Christ. We bring these things to you now. And each week at Bridgeway, one of the traditions we do, one of our liturgies is we have a simple time of silent confession, reflection, and prayer as individuals. And then we'll often pray a corporate prayer. And I encourage us right now in the silence of our, of our seat to just talk to the Lord about whatever is going on and bring that to Him. And then I want us to pray Psalm 121 together. But let's just pray and reflect in silence now. Lord, hear our prayers. And then let's recite Psalm 121, a great refocusing psalm together. Let's pray this prayer together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. 
from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.